Usually Christmas sermons will go to a biblical text that describes the Christmas event. That's what normally happens. You know, we'll talk about the shepherds, we'll talk about the angels, the animals, you know, we'll talk about the wise men, et cetera, et cetera. And that's perfectly fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. A lot of pastors are, are do, have done that today, and we'll do that this week, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, but tonight, I want to do something a, a bit different. I want to go to a text, a biblical text, that doesn't describe the Christmas event, but instead explains what the Christmas event means. Right? What's the purpose of the manger? What's the purpose of the wise men? What's the purpose of this baby who has come? You see, it's just so very easy for many of us this time of year, me included, to just let the nostalgia hit us, to just let this season wash over us. It's easy. You know, we've got fond memories. We feel warm and cozy. We've got some time off from work and from school. We just feel nice. We just feel nice. <laughs> and so we just kind of float through this season that we like so much. Now, for others of us, Christmas is a very hard time, a very hard time. Many of our memories and current situations are painful. They're painful. And so this season is not as nice. And it, for, for us, we just seem to try to grit and bear through this season. This season is not warm and cozy. It's cold and difficult. This season is uncomfortable for us. And so we grit and just try to bear it. Tonight, I want to help both groups. I want to help both groups. I want to help those who are just kind of floating through the season with all warm and fuzzies. And I want to help those who this season is difficult and cold for you. I think that once your heart comes to grips with the true meaning of this story, that will make all the difference in your life. So let's do that right now. Let's go to a text that explains the meaning of Christmas. It's 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. And if you don't have your Bible with you, it's no big deal. We'll have it on the screen for you. Uh, if you have your Bible, 1 John is uh, pretty close to the end of the Bible, right there just before the uh, book of Revelation. And this is uh, the Apostle John, John the Beloved, who is writing. So we'll look at 1 John, and we will look at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, the life of appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father 
and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this season. What a season it is to celebrate the greatest gift ever given. But we pray that your words would speak to us tonight so that we might not just drift through this season casually or that we might not see it as as cold and as difficult, but that we might see it for what it truly is, for what you designed it to be. And, Father, we pray that these words, these words would change us. The truth of these words would change us from the inside out. And, Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so the Apostle John is saying here in our text tonight that Christmas means three things. Christmas means three things. Number one, Christmas means that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Salvation is by grace and by grace alone. Notice how John talks about Jesus here. Uh, In John's gospel, he calls Jesus the Word. He opens up his gospel actually by calling Jesus that. He is the Word. But here he actually goes even further, right? He goes further and he calls Jesus the word of life, the word of life. John is not just saying that Jesus has life or that Jesus gives life, but that Jesus is life. He is life. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. The life appeared. See that? (laughs) The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This is one major point that separates Christianity from every other religion. From every other religion. You see, every other religion has a founder that came along one day and started teaching about how to gain eternal life. Now, they may not have exactly called it eternal life, but in general, it's the same thing, okay? They came along trying to teach others how to gain eternal life. And what they did was they pulled out their long to-do list, right? They they had their to-do list, and they pointed to it, and they said, all right, here's what you got to do to have eternal life. You do X, Y, and Z, A, B, C, and D, on this list, and then if you do it pretty good, we'll tally up all your tally marks, and then at the end of your life, maybe, just maybe, you'll gain eternal life. Every other religion looks just like that. The X, Y, and Zs might be different, but the equation is the same. It's the same. Do X, Y, and Z, and you'll get eternal life. But Jesus comes along. And says, I am eternal life. Come to get you. 
You see the difference. It's exactly the opposite. Eternal life is not a place where we walk on streets of gold and play Xbox all day. That is not what eternal life is. Eternal life is a person. Eternal life is a person. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, Heaven and Jesus are the same thing. The same thing. You could not work your way to heaven. And so 2,000 years ago, in a stable in Bethlehem, heaven came to you. Heaven came to you. And heaven did not come with a to-do list. (laughs) He was not wrapped in a to-do list. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Jesus did not come to show us the way. He came to be the way, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not us working to God. It's Emmanuel, God with us. This makes Christianity, this makes the gospel so utterly unique. Do you see it? Do you see how utterly unique this is? The gospel is not a what-to-do list. It's a what-he-did list. If you don't believe me, you can flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read. As Paul lays out the gospel, it has nothing to do with what you and I do. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done. Jesus did what we could not do. And salvation, therefore, comes only through faith by grace in him and what he has done. Now, after saying all of that, (laughs) my son's out on that one. He's out. Hopefully he'll return. It gets better, son. It's better. So now after saying all of that, it is astonishing and depressing how few people understand this. Even many, many church attenders, many. A new survey, I just found this. A brand new survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University finds that a majority of people in America who describe themselves as Christians accept a works-based means of salvation. The majority. The study shows 52% of American Christians believe that People can have eternal life if they live good lives and don't hurt anyone. 
He's back. <laughs> it's just now getting good, just in time. 52% of American Christians believe you can have eternal life if you just be pretty good and don't hurt anybody. These are folks whose church's official doctrines right there on the website says that eternal life comes only by grace through faith in Christ. It's on the church website. It's probably in the foyer. And yet 52% believe that they will gain eternal life through good works. How has this happened? How have we read the Gospels and totally missed the Gospel? The Gospel of Matthew tells us a story of a rich young ruler who approached Jesus and asked him, what good works must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus responded that if the man wanted to be judged by his works, then he must keep the entire law and do so perfectly. So Jesus is saying, oh, there is a pathway to eternal life by works. It's called perfection. If that's how you want to roll, you can roll that way, but I'm just letting you know you're going to have to obey every single law perfectly. And then you're in. You'll get in. And the young man went away sad, if you know the story. He went away sad and very confused. <laughs> Why? Well, the young man, just like apparently many American church attenders, thought that he had done enough good works. He thought he'd already done enough good works to gain eternal life. He said, hey, I went to church. I paid my tithe. I gave money to hurricane relief. I'm pretty nice to people. I never hurt anybody. He thought he'd done enough. And so he went away sad. Because he, along with so many, apparently, American Christians, he judged himself by his own standards of morality, not God's standards. He judged himself by man-made standards of morality, not God's perfect standard of morality that is required. Jesus was making clear to the rich young ruler, and he's making clear to you and me tonight that good is not good enough. The Apostle James says in James chapter 2, verse 10, quote, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of it all. 
one point, you've become guilty of it all. So, because we cannot keep the law perfectly, we have no choice but to rely on the one person who did. The one person who did. When we believe in Jesus and what he has done for us on our behalf, Paul writes in Romans 4, 5, that our faith, our faith in Jesus is credited to us as righteousness. Now that's pretty cool. <laughs> you ever thought about how just super cool that is? We who are wicked and sinful and selfish and narcissistic, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, we're counted as if we were righteous, though we are not. Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account. That is way too cool. That is what they call good news. Good news. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith in Jesus' work. We are saved by the gospel. And that is the sad irony of the rich young ruler, isn't it? <laughs> he asked Jesus how to gain eternal life. <laughs> Not realizing that he was talking to eternal life. Okay, so number one, Christmas means that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Number two, John shows us that Christmas means God wants fellowship with us. God wants fellowship with us. Look at verse 3. John says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If you didn't know, God went to infinite lengths to have a personal relationship with you. To know you. And for you to know him. Infinite lengths. God did not just want to be a concept we believe in or a powerful force that we bow to. He wanted to be our friend. Think about it. I'm going to give you three words that should change your life forever. You should never be the same. And here are the three words. God became human.
It's just three words. But it's the three most profound words in all of history. God became human. Have you ever thought about how ridiculously mind-blowing that is? God became one of us. What? Why? Why would he do that? Intimacy is why. He wanted to really know us. And he wanted us to really know him. But you see, here's, here's the catch. We could not really know God unless he became one of us. What do I mean? Well, my son Jacob, as you've seen tonight, uh, he, he has always complained that he can't look directly at the sun. Even since he was really, really little, he's just so bummed out that he can't see it. Okay, he tries. He's tried to look at it. But he can't. Why? Because it hurts. <laughs> it hurts to look at the sun. The sun is way too bright. We can't look at it. Even, even though we want to, we desperately want to look at it and see all of its glory and majesty and, the, you know, and all, the, all the cool things going on on the sun. We can't see it. We want to and we just can't. It will burn out our retinas. Its glory is too great for us. So if you really want to see the glory of the sun, you need a filter. You need something between you and the sun so that you can see it. And this is what Christmas means. On Christmas morning, 2,000 years ago, God wrapped himself in a human flesh. He gave himself a filter so that we could really see him. So that we could really behold his glory and his wonders. You see, God's glory is so bright, so powerful, no human could see him and live. It would melt us like wax. But God wanted us to see him. He wanted us to know him. And so, as Isaiah says, to us, a son is given. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When you behold Jesus, you are beholding all of the glories of Almighty God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. 
Now, there are so many conversion stories. You guys have probably heard of uh, several of them. There are so many conversion stories of skeptics or people from other religions who read the Gospels, just read the Gospels, nothing else, and converted to Christianity. They didn't have a preacher. They didn't have a worship leader. They just had the Gospels. They read the Gospels, sometimes just one of them, sometimes just part of one, and they immediately repented and converted to Christianity. Why? Because they were seeing the glory and the wonders of God for the first time in the Jesus of those pages. For the first time, they could see the Son. Christmas means that God wants to be near us. In our good times and in our painful times, He wants to be near us. He wants to be close to us, closer to us than a brother, closer closer to us than a mother. Christmas means that sinful, rebellious, wicked humans like you and like me can have an intimate relationship with an infinitely holy God. This truth should fill you with uncontainable joy. And you may have to just kind of think about it for a while. (laughs) But this truth should fill you with uncontainable joy that you have been an enemy of God your whole life, and this God wants to know you and wants you to know him. He wants you all to be like this. He wants you to be BFF with him. And John knows that. He knows this should just fill you with ridiculous joy. It fills him with joy just to tell you about it. Look at verse 4. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. What a joy it is to spread the gospel. Daniel Steele was a Christian minister in Britain in the 18th century, and he wrote this about his prayer life. He wrote this. He says, quote, almost every week and sometimes every day, I feel a pressure of his great love that comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make me groan under an almost unsupportable plethora of joy. At such times, he has unlocked every part of my being and flooded them all with the light of his presence. My heart has been touched, and its stoniness has been melted in the presence of Jesus, the one altogether lovely, end quote. Now that is a man who has intimacy with God. And that kind of intimacy, and even greater, is available to every one of us. Every one of us. There's no barriers anymore to that, to intimacy with God. Jesus Christ came 
so that we could know him intimately. Not from afar, but close. Closer than a brother. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Friends. And this brings us to our last point. Christmas means that salvation is by grace. Christmas means that God wants fellowship with us. And lastly, Christmas means that love is real. Love is real. Our secular society today will tell you that physical matter is all there is. It's all that exists. There's no soul. There's no spirit. There's no higher plane. You are just a collection of atoms derived from a blind and meaningless process of evolution. And every important thought and feeling you have, including love, is just the firing of chemicals in your brain. You see, your ancient ancestors had certain chemical reactions in their brains, which gave them the illusion of love toward others, which led to certain behaviors that enabled them to survive. And all the people who didn't have those chemical reactions in their brains did not survive. And so these chemical responses have been passed down to us. This is the dirty little secret of secularism. Love ain't real. It's not real. It's just a chemical reaction. But here's the trick. No one, no one lives like that is true. No one. No one does. Not even the staunchest atheist, not the staunchest naturalist or materialist lives like that is true. They don't. They might write books about it. They might give college lectures about it. They might blow up social media about it. But in reality, they do not at all live like it's true. When an atheist proposes to his girlfriend, he doesn't get down on one knee and say, Babe, there's these chemical reactions going on in my brain that are, are giving me the illusion of feelings for you just to help our species survive. Will you marry me? No. What does he say? He says, I love you as if love 
was real. But on his own worldview, love is not real. It's a cruel illusion, a random result of natural selection. Dr. Francis Crick, a Nobel Prize winning scientist, wrote this in his book, The Scientific Search for the Soul. He says, quote, You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are all, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules, end quote. That was from Dr. Francis Crick. Now, you know who doesn't live like that's true? Francis Crick. You know who also doesn't live like that's true? Everybody. Everybody. No one lives like that. No one lives as if love is just the smashing of molecules together. Every one of us hold love up as our highest value. Despite the fact that in an atheistic world, we have no right to do so. No right. If the secular view is correct, we are all deluded. If the secular view is correct, love does not exist. But if Christmas is true, if Christmas is true, then love is the most concrete reality of them all. You see, Christmas tells us that love pre-existed the universe, created the universe, and is redeeming. The universe. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Does that remind you of another verse? Maybe the first verse in the Bible. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Why did Jesus go through all this trouble? To be born in a manger? To be seen with our eyes? To be touched with our hands? Why? Dorothy L. Sayers, you may have heard of her. She was the f one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And she was a terrific mystery writer. And her most famous character was Lord Peter Wimsey, who was an aristocrat who solved mysteries. In the first several short stories and novels, Lord Peter Wimsey was a single and lonely man. 
And then suddenly, a woman character appeared in the later novels. And her name was Harriet Vane. Now, Harriet Vane in the novels was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Harriet Vane was a mystery writer. And she and Peter met. And they solved several mysteries together. And they fell in love. And at the end of the novels, they lived happily ever after. Now, isn't that a sweet story? Do you see what she did? Many people over the years have said that what Dorothy L. Sayers did was look into the world she created and looked at the man she created and fell in love with him. And because he was lonely and needed someone to save him, she wrote herself into the story so that she could save him and so they could live happily ever after. What a moving story. But incredibly, This is more than a moving story. It's a true one. It's true on the ultimate level. The entire story of Christmas is that our creator was so crazy in love with us that when he looked at this world and he saw how lost and lonely we were, he wrote himself into the story to save us. His radical love led him to a manger and it carried him all the way to a cross where he would Pay the penalty for your sin and my sin in our place so that we could be with him and live happily ever after. Christmas proves that love is not a chemical reaction. It's transcendent. It's powerful. It's real. It's real. And you know it, and I know it. Love existed before the world. Love created the world. And love has come into the world to save it. That is the meaning of Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, 
there are not enough words or actions we could come up with to describe your love. Father, we know that it is infinite. It is unfathomable. It is steadfast. It is never-ending. It is unwavering. It is unconditional. And Father, what can we, what can we do? What can we say? You have not only told us that you loved us, but you proved it in sending your son to live and to die in our place. What a God you are. Please, Father, help us. Help us this Christmas season to not let it just happen to us. But let us cling to your tangible love shown to us in your precious Son. Help us cling to the old rugged cross. so that we might know that even though we suffer, even though we struggle, even though we are lonely, you are with us and you love us and that you have saved us, not based on our own works, but by grace. What a God you are. And please, please, let us never forget the real meaning of Christmas.